0: Welcome to the Connect Church podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So today we're going to be in Esther chapter 5, and we're going to work also toward chapter 6. We've been working our way through Esther, but before I get started, I would like to I know there's a lot of folks that, uh, that are, are traveling for graduations and stuff. We have a lot of folks uh, here, and this may not be your you know, regular place to worship the Lord. If this is your first Sunday here and you don't have a home church, or maybe this is your fifth Sunday here, but you don't have a home church, we'd love for you to consider yourself a part of our family here. That's what we are, just family, trying to love the Lord and serve the Lord together. So I'm really glad that you're here. I uh, hope that you feel at home. Um, And it's especially nice for for Donetta and I because we do have our family here from Kentucky to celebrate Haley's graduation. And uh, I'd like to introduce my mom. They're not out here very often and we don't get home very often. My mom, Ruthie Rogers, and my dad, Warren Rogers. So you can blame them for most of uh, my foibles and uh, thank God for them. Donetta's mom and dad, uh, Donna Woods and James Woods. Uh, sitting down here too so I appreciate them being able to be here today and to celebrate with us a milestone and Kelsey uh, sorry uh, Kelsey James is here uh, our niece uh, but anyway I wanted to just say uh, a thank you to 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 those who have to travel in order to be able to celebrate and uh, I also want to say this today uh, most of you or all of you should have if we have your information uh, sent you an invitation to help us celebrate with haley and uh, that'll be today at our house at four if you if you can we're we'd love for you to be there if if not we understand that too but uh, we just we want to we want to let these young people know how special they are to us I appreciate those of you who have already made that possible I appreciate appreciate you Esther chapter five uh, I'm going to to kind of teach through this in a way that I, it's not my favorite but but I'm just obeying the Lord and and this is the way uh the way I sense that he wants me to work through it and uh uh, Esther has been really encouraging I I heard from one person who said that they just finished a a a book study on Esther and when I announced I was going to be preaching through Esther they couldn't wait because they were primed and ready and then after you know two or three weeks in it's like wait a minute that ain't the same story that I read uh, and so uh, I, I, do, I do understand uh, some of that, but we're about to wrap all of that together. I say all that to say, if this is a standalone sermon for you, I would encourage you to go back and to listen leading up to today because I just don't have time week to week to summarize last week's lesson. So I hope that you will do that and it will make a lot more sense uh, because what we're doing is we're telling the complete story. Not just picking out verses here and there that fit that fit our narrative, but we'll be in Esther chapter five. I've already said that very quickly. There has been a a real turmoil uh, in uh, Persia, in Susa, where the capital is, and this uh, this Agagite from way back has uh, uh, gotten favor with the king and has now had the king order a decree that on a certain day 11 months from now any persian can kill any jew for any reason in fact it's hunting season for jews uh, just for sport just because you can and so we are we are recognizing that the queen unbeknownst to the king is actually a jew she's never disclosed this information to him and so uh, he has signed the death notice to Millions of people that are in the Persian Empire. Now, the, where we picked up at last is cousin Mordecai coming to Esther and saying, "You've you must advocate for every Jew because you're a Jew too, and whatever happens to us is going to happen to you." And so, advocate for us. And she said, "I'm an I'm an I'm the queen, but I I have no favor. I've not been summoned to the king for thirty days. We're we're not necessarily not on speaking terms, but." He has forgotten about me long ago. Uh, and, And so Mordecai said to her, well, God is going to preserve his people one way or another. We all may be dead by the time he does that, but God does have a plan. But who knows that God didn't put you in this place for such a time as this. And so my favorite part of the entire book of Esther is when Esther says, okay, I will go to the king. And if I die, I die. Cause it, see, here's the here's the thing. And it's it's one thing of well, if I die, I die. But she knows what's gonna happen to Esther if she does nothing. She's gonna die. So I either die fighting or I die not fighting. So if I if I perish, I perish. And so here's what she said. Here's the thing that I ask. I want you to go and tell all the Jews. So me and all the other Jews, we're going to fast and pray for three days. And then I'll go in to see the king. Now, here's some things that I want you to recognize. Because if, if we don't hear it set like this, then we're, we, we miss, we're able to miss a whole lot of things. You remember when King Ahasuerus first said, all of the beautiful virgin girls, I want them all to come to me, and they all came. History tells us somewhere in the neighborhood of between four and six hundred of these young women came to parade themselves in front of the king. And when they got to town, you remember how long they went through beautification treatments? A year! To get their skin tone right, to get their nutrition right, to get their Features, right? Their arms looking right? Their legs looking right? Their makeup colors right? A year. And Esther went through it, and she outshone them all. You remember? So now, and that's when she was invited into the palace. And now she's not invited into the king. And what does she do? Well, what we would expect her to do is to say, I'd better eat some vegetables. I'd better Make sure that my makeup is fresh. I'd better make sure my hair is cut. She doesn't. She does the one thing in complete opposition to that. She says, I'm not going to eat for three days. I'm not going to go outside for three days. I'm going to spend three days right here fasting and praying. She's not, listen, here's how we know that there's a tide shifting in the story of Esther. She's not worried about outward appearances. You know, when, whenever you're desperate, your priorities shift. When she saw the kingdom, she's willing to go through whatever she needed to go through to get hers. But when there was an issue, a problem, a crisis that she couldn't avoid and maybe even impending death and I don't know what I'm going to do next, it's really funny how you turn to prayer and how you turn to fasting and how you turn to God's will and how you turn from the external back to the internal. So fast and pray for three days, and then I'll go into the king. So this is where we pick up. The tension of the story continues to mount, but this is at an all-time high. Is she going to decide to trust God with her life, or is she going to, to chicken out? So the day comes, and Esther puts on her royal robes, makes her way to the inner court of the king's palace, and she turns a corner, and she sees the king holding the scepter sitting on his royal throne. King looks up and he sees her. Scared, nervous, knees knocking, fearful, hungry. Verse 2, when, she saw, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand and Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. <sighs> she made it. Phase one, complete. She doesn't die. Don't die. But now what? How's, how is she going to bring up her request? So the request would be, hey, you made a really bad decision three days ago. I need you to undo it. Well, the law is you can't undo it. There is no undoing it. It can't be undone. So, king, you've got to figure this out because I'm going to die. And what would he say? I don't really care. I haven't seen you in 30 days anyway. I'll make do. I'm not going to look like a fool again. I've looked like a fool to with Vashti. i looked like a fool to everybody in the province. I've looked like a fool to Greece. I've looked like a fool to, to Sparta. I've looked like a fool everywhere I went. I will not look like a fool again. So what does she say? Verse 3. What is it, queen? This is, wow, I don't know if he's like, in a good mood. What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It will be given to you even to the half of my kingdom. Can you imagine Xerxes the great looking at this queen and saying, what can I do for you? I'll give you up to half of everything I have. Not only does the king say he wants to see her, the king also promises to give her whatever she asks for listen, this story couldn't be better. This is the time for her to say, let my people go. You know what she says? Are you hungry? (laughs) I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. Remember, we're talking about $400 billion in annual revenue for the kingdom. I'll give you up to half of it. I've I've decided to put together a feast. I would love for you to come. Look at verse 4. If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Now, I don't know if she's being a chicken or if this comes out of three days of prayer and fasting. But the king promises Esther anything and she says, Can I serve you? This couldn't possibly be the remedy that we're we're looking for, right? Look at verse 5. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were, of course, drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. There it is again. Second opportunity, same opportunity. I guess Esther knows what she's doing. Because now, he ain't thinking so clearly. Yesterday, he was on the top of his game. Today, he's got a little wine in him. She can ask, he's happy, he's full, he's a little drunk, and now they've been reacquainted. She knows that she can ask. She's not on shaky ground anymore. Esther says this in verse 7. My wish and my request is... If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, you, still, you sense some redundancy in her. I'm trying to get there, but she, let the king and Haman come to a feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. She's buying one more day. I, I've sensed such hesitancy that she can't bring herself to say, So instead of jumping to the the tomorrow's feast like previously, the author tells us that Haman went out that day, verse 9, first part of verse 9, joyful and glad of heart. So in the story that follows Esther, when the characters all leave the story, it follows, the spotlight follows Haman, joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman leaves the palace, He saw Mordecai, this is in verse 9, in the king's gate, and he neither arose nor trembled before him, and he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. I'm not going to go back and rehash that, but that word is Hema. It's the same word when Mordecai before was filled with wrath toward Mordecai. And it's the same word. He has not gotten over it. He is still seething, loathing Mordecai because Mordecai the Jew will not bow down to Haman the Agagite. It's funny though, isn't it? Isn't it funny how, I want you just to notice, there are so many truths. I can't go into all of them, but every now and then they're just little truths, little nuggets I want to point out here. Isn't it funny how pride, arrogance, selfishness can take us from happy to wrath? So quickly? I mean, he is with the king. The queen just invited him to lunch. He is joyful and glad of heart until that one person in the entire kingdom doesn't bow down to him, and now he's raging. Listen, so here's, here's a good takeaway. When your happiness is dependent upon people, your anger is just right around the corner. When, when your happiness depends on people's approval... That's not really happiness. When Haman's happiness is based on approval, reputation, arrogance, pride, power, his anger was also based on approval. And so if there's one thing that I would learn here from Haman... Is that we cannot live our life based on the approval of people in the room with us. I, no, it's no wonder we have so many emotional issues. Because, I mean, as I look around, not in the room, around in the world that we're living in, this is the part of the story where you expect Haman's friends and his family to kind of talk him down. Whoa, wait a minute there, Haman. You, you might have a little self awareness issue. You know, you might need to tone it down a little bit. Calm down. You you you're way too angry. But look what his wife says. Verse 14, verse 14. Let a gallows, fifty cubits high, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And sadly, the idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows. Made. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I do want to bring out something that the text in English doesn't really um, communicate excellently. In the original language, the word gallows. When you think, when we think of gallows, we think of like the Old West, like like hanging somebody from a rope. Or the trap doors that fall and break a person's neck. That's what we always think of with gallows. But in Hebrew, that's not what the word means at all. In fact, the word gallows actually means it's It means tree or wood. That's all it means is wood. And when it says that to hang Mordecai, again, we think of gallows and hanging. It would make sense. But this word in Hebrew means to suspend. Now, so again we could see a you know a noose and a gallows like we imagine but the truth of the matter is this form of execution does not exist yet but what does exist with wood and suspension is the earliest form of crucifixion that the assyrians that were defeated just by the medes and the persians developed as the worst form of humiliating death the world probably has ever known. The wood was a sharp spear that was buried into the earth with a point on the top of it. Here, 50 cubits, is 75 feet tall. Zeresh, Haman's wife, said put Mordecai at the very tip top of that point. And what they would do is they would take a human being and set them on top of that point. Now, if you're talking about a 10 or 12 foot spike, which was normal, they would take their feet and pull them down that spike and they would set them there until they were dead. And then they would leave them there so you would know don't mess with Persia. So here's what we want to do. We want to make a 75 foot Spear. Set Haman on top of it and let that sucker slide all the way down. And then they'll know, don't mess with Haman. And he was filled with joy and found pleasure in this form of execution. Mordecai might not even be alive by the time the feast takes place. So what does Haman do? Well, again, reading between the lines. In the morning, go to the king and tell him it's ready. This is is the first project for tomorrow. So Haman leaves and he immediately puts his officials on forming this spike. And and Esther keeps putting off trying to get the Jews out of trouble. Because she's living in fear. And I don't blame her. But the man who raised her is about to be raised. It's a good thing she doesn't know that. I know what we say. If if God were to appear in the book of Esther, I think Esther, what we would say is, uh, this would be a really good time for him to show up. (laughs) Chapter 6, verse 1. On that night, the king couldn't sleep. The night that the stake is being formed to impale Mordecai. The king couldn't sleep, so what does he do? Well, the second part of verse 1 says, He gave orders to bring the book of uh, memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, before you think that's riveting reading, (laughs) actually, uh, uh, scholars uh, histor- historians tell us that these chronicles of the kings they've actually found a lot of these that they're, not like, they're not like great saga stories they're spreadsheets with dates and numbers and, uh, so he's, he's, not, he's not looking for a riveting story he's looking for something so boring that it would put him to sleep it doesn't work hours pass by king still awake cannot get to sleep early 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 in the morning this is just as daybreak is occurring and Haman has given the orders for the spike he's on his way to the king it's still way early before before city hall is open but Haman wants to get in line first because the very first thing when the king opens the door I want to be there to say first the first project of the day is kill uh, Mordecai And so the king is awake super early in the morning. So look at verse 2. And it was found written in the book how Mordecai had told about Bithena and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, you remember we just read about them a few weeks ago, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So at such a time as this, Haman's servants are completing the 75-foot stake to impale Mordecai. The king's servants are reading about what a great man Mordecai was to the king. The same moments. They're making the spike. They're telling the king what a great man he is. Oh, this is very important. This happened four years ago. This is a open up the Bible and... This is This is crazy. Irony. So, you remember, Haman is now, I mean, Mordecai has now saved his life. Of all the stories in all of the books read to the king that night, you get to verse three. King Ahasuerus, while he's trying his best to get to sleep, he says, Wait a minute, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And how they remember it stuck out to them because nothing was done for him. Now, here's another thought, thing that we need to know about history. This was unheard of because what the kings of old would do is any any value that a citizen had given them, they made sure they went overboard to say thank you. They wanted everybody to know, everybody to know that they were grateful because what it does is everybody's now looking to do great things for the king because he'll reward us too. So it builds loyalty and in great morale. So what did I do for that man? I... He's not really interested in Mordecai, it's more of the I want to be reminded of how generous I am. So, what did we do for that man? We didn't do anything for him. He sat up in bed and he said, What? What do you mean? We didn't do anything for this man. What we need to do something for this man. Verse four. The king, this insecure people pleaser, always needs advice. I need somebody else to tell me what I'm thinking. So he said, who's in the court? I need somebody to tell me what to do. And on any other day, the court would be empty for a few more hours. But on that day, Haman is leaving his backyard where the spike is being crafted for Mordecai to come first thing in the morning to be able to get Ahasuerus' seal of approval for execution. So here comes Haman through the city gates. As soon as the official looks out the window, well, Haman's out there. Bring him to me immediately. Haman, verse second part of verse four, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Now, of course, Haman knows it's early. He probably assumes he's going to have to wait. So you can imagine, it's I'm making this up. I don't know what time it is. 4.30 in the morning, 5 o'clock in the morning. Nobody else is around And as soon as Haman hits the gates, they say, Hey, Haman, the king wants to see you. Wait a minute. The king doesn't get up till 8. Look how important I am. The king wants to see me. I barely get through the gate, and the king wants to see me. Man, I am there. I am something. Timing is impeccable. (laughs) So I want you just to think about the process here where the king is going to ask, how do I treat this man that you're trying to execute today? Look at verse 6, second part of verse 6. What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? He doesn't pull Haman. He doesn't tell Haman who he's talking about. He just shot straight to Haman. Well, you know, we know who whom the king honors this is pretty easy i mean i had supper with him yesterday (laughs) i'm having supper with him today i'm here at the crack of dawn he wants to see me first thing i mean in fact the bible says haman tells himself who would the king honor more than he would honor me obviously he's thinking he's talking about me i mean self-awareness right Verse this third part of verse six. Haman said to himself, "Who would the king delight to honor more than me?" So Haman comes in wanting to kill and publicly shame Mordecai, while the king is wanting to honor Mordecai. Verse verse seven: For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let the robes of the horses be handed over to the one, one of the king's most noble officials. And let him dress the man with whom the king delights to honor. And let him lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, <laughs> Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. I mean, Haman is in such a dream world. His favorite line, in fact, Haman says it three times. In just this one verse, in this couple of verses, the man, the king delights to honor. So the king wakes Haman up in verse 10. He says, all right, hurry with haste. Take the robes and the horse you've said and do to Mordecai the Jew. And you know what? I'm not going to get a servant to do it. Haman, I'm going to give you the honor. You take Mordecai through all the city and you tell everybody this is the man whom the king delights. You imagine that? You ever had you ever told your kids to do something that they didn't want? They were obedient, but their heart wasn't in it? Can you imagine Haman with the reins in his hand? May this happen to anybody who king delights in. Yeah, I can't even imagine, hardly. And he said in verse second part of verse 10, leave out nothing that you've said. Haman knows that there is a 75 foot tall spike waiting for Mordecai. And now while he should be sliding down that pole, He has taken him through every city street telling everybody what a great man Haman is. I mean, Mordecai is. Isn't that irony? Isn't that like the epitome of irony? It'd be bad enough to watch it, but to be the mouthpiece, having to declare it? Verse 12. Mordecai returned to the king's gate, back to work as normal. Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. You know, this is the only real spiritual moment that that the book of Esther has had so far is fast and pray for three days. It's the only spiritual moment we've had yet. When Esther said, here's what we're going to do. If I die, I die, but we're going to pray first. When, When they set themselves to pray and they challenged all the Jews to pray and to fast, That's where the tide began to turn in the story and in their life. The Jews have returned to God. They fasted. They've prayed. They've gotten serious. And they've now stopped mourning. They have now stopped fasting and praying. And now we're on the fourth day. Mordecai, instead of being impaled on a stake, is dressed in the king's robe with his crown on his head. And Haman, the enemy of the Jews, who has all the credibility, all of the honor, all of the prestige, is running to his house with his head covered in shame. It seemed like Esther's going before the king would be a turning point, but it's not. It's not the turning point. The praying and fasting was the turning point in the book of Esther. Now, I want to shift gears here pretty hard and, and begin to kind of wrap up. You know, you look at verse 6, Haman's wife, I mean, verse 13 of chapter 6, Haman's wife, Haman goes into the house and here's what, here's what happens. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. I mean, when he left, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people. You will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So you know, as we work through here, we can see the only one. Ahasuerus had a plan. Haman has a plan. Mordecai has a plan. Esther has a plan. Every plan failed miserably. There's only one person that we haven't heard from in the story, and that's God who also had a plan but needs no credit. God has been working all along, orchestrating everything. So we're looking for a hero in this story, and it must be Esther. No, it must be Mordecai. It just depends on what side of the story you're on, because what about the king? What about Haman? What about the ones who are rising in ranks? I mean, we need a hero for the story, and all the while the hero is completely silent but not absent. By the way, where is Esther and Mordecai when everything shifts and changes? Where are the ones responsible to make sure that God's glory is seen? They're asleep. The man who has all the power and the greatest plan, neither one of them can sleep. But the ones whose life are in danger now that they've turned their life to the trust of the Lord are asleep all night long. So who should get the glory for what takes place here then? Esther? No. Mordecai? No. Who keeps the king awake on this of all nights? Why does the king decide to read the book of remembrances and it just so happens it falls on the exact day of four years ago? How is it that the Persian king has forgotten to reward the man who saved his life? How is it that Haman just happens to be in the court at the exact moment that the counselors look out the window? How does the king neglect to mention Mordecai's name and just say the man? Why in the world? That's the weirdest grammar ever. What made it about Haman? made Haman so quick to just assume he was talking about himself. Why does does the king ask Haman to carry out the project instead of some servant? By the way, all of these things are kind of impossible and ironic. But when you put all of those together in the same story, there is a hero emerging. Someone who is orchestrating all the time everything. And if you take everything that we've talked about over the last five weeks and you put them in the same story, God has been orchestrating the lives of these people for 500 years. And that 500 years ago actually began began 1,000 years prior to that. Now, what we want to do is we want to notice the God of the miraculous. You know, that's when we notice God. And so when we need God to speak, we need God to work, we need a miracle. Well, I'm here to tell you that he is working in the mundane just like he works in the supernatural. The miraculous, the everyday. God's name's not mentioned in the book. It's pretty obvious he's at work. But we need a miracle. No, we need to be obedient to the day. We don't need to only be faithful when we see miracles. Faithful when we experience healings. Faithful when we see God do things that can't be explained any other way. We need to be amazed at the grace and the mercy of God in the orchestration of every day when he doesn't violate his natural laws. So, so when we live in days like we live in, it's really easy to say, why doesn't God speak? Why doesn't God show up? Why doesn't this and why doesn't that? We need to move from God. God's moving. And if you need the miraculous to recognize it, you're looking in the wrong direction. You're looking at the wrong kingdom. When the Jews got their eyes on the right kingdom, they began to see God in the mundane. But when they were focused on themselves and their self-awareness and their day-to-day needs, they couldn't see God. And I'm afraid that's exactly where we are in our country and in our own lives. We are so distracted by our own desires, at our own ambition, our own wants, that it takes the miraculous to get our attention. But I'm just telling you. Now they didn't see it. I think we should give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. They don't see every little crosshatch coming together as God is forming the story. And we may not see it either. But when you when you can see what God has done, that's wisdom. But when you can be obedient when you can't see what God is doing, that's faith. And that's what God has called us to. Not to be obedient when you see a miracle, but to be obedient when you don't. God is always at work, and he is always working for his glory. Listen, he is for you, but he's not working for your glory. His glory is for you. And if you're trying to orchestrate your life for your comfort and your ease and hoping that everybody agrees with you and wanting to be the majority, chances are you're working toward your glory. And I'm telling you, if you're living for your glory and your kingdom, you will not see the God of the mundane. But when you set your eyes on Jesus, you'll begin to see him at work everywhere. He is working, orchestrating. He doesn't need credit. He's not going to declare it. He doesn't have to be stated. You're living it out. And if you're in the middle of something that you can't understand, if you're at a crossroads in life and you're trying to figure it out and you don't understand what's going on, you're not at the end of the story. I mean, you might see a sharp spike and wonder, when am I going to be called to that? Maybe you might think that, but the story's not over yet. There are still characters being developed, things that God is orchestrating and doing. I want to share with you a quick verse in John chapter 13, verse 7. Jesus said to Peter, and I want you to listen to this close. Memorize it if you can. Here's what Jesus says to Peter. What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterward, you will understand. Isn't that beautiful? What God is doing in your life right now, you may not understand it. But afterward, you'll understand. You'll understand that when God has a plan, God begins to orchestrate the plan. And sometimes he supersedes his laws. Most of the time he doesn't have to. That's why when Jesus was born, it says, in the fullness of time, God gave his son. I mean, the time was right. God is a God of timing. And I know your timing may be off right now. What you want to be accomplished and what God wants to be accomplished may not be the same thing. And God is at work. He is orchestrating. When you are beside yourself, when you have a death notice, when you have a a world collapsing, when you have family issues, when you have financial issues, when you have work issues, when you have whatever the issues may be, I know you have come down to that place of desperation. And when you align your kingdom up with God's kingdom, you'll begin to see God is in complete sovereign control always always yours isn't to reorchestrate the details of the event yours is to be obedient to the moment that you're in and trusting him think about this this Jesus who who came in the fullness of time and, and God began to do. I mean, the story, the hero. I mean, God is orchestrating every part of it. And you have you have a man like Haman, a man like Mordecai. Mordecai is heading from a parade, from a from a. Uh, I mean, in, in the story of Esther, he's going from, a, from, from torture, let's just call it what it is, from a cross. The cross gets converted to a, to a parade for Mordecai, Mordecai's honor. You notice that? At the very moment Mordecai should be sliding, Mordecai is being honored. But I want us to fast forward to the greatest hero who went from a parade where he was being honored to a cross. It's just a reversal of the story where Jesus took all of our struggle, all of our pain, all of our issues, and they were nailed to his cross. So this morning, and we're not quite finished with Esther just yet, But this morning, I want us to kind of sum everything up with this. If you're the hero, or if you seek to be the hero of your own story, you're doing it wrong. Jesus Christ should be the hero of your story. And you should be looking for every opportunity to tell his story through you, to live in such a way that his life is displayed. I know we all want the parade for ourselves. We want the applause of people. And that's going to lead us on an emotional roller coaster. And by the way, we'll all lose. But when you seek the glory of Jesus Christ, it is nothing but the glory of the kingdom. And it's a surefire win. And I know some of you are in a place of, I don't know what to do next. And my life is not in a the place I want it to be. And I'm not going to try to demean that and to diminish that. What I am going to say is. You're not alone. But just know this. God loves you and God is at work. And we begin to see that shine most when they begin to turn their attention toward Him. And so I want us to pray. But I don't want us just to pray to close a service. I want us to be people of prayer. Because once we begin to be a people of prayer... I'm telling you, you'll you'll begin to see God in every corner. In every mundane thing about your life, you'll begin to see how he is intersecting everything. Romans 8, 28. And we know all things work together for good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. So the things that concern us concern him. And he's at work. Let his glory... Be your pleasure instead of your comfort. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we were reminded of many things. But the thing that I pray that we will walk remembering in your spirit, that your spirit would continue to teach us of who we are in Jesus. And Lord, I imagine that there are people in this room this morning that are not in a right relationship with you we keep looking at circumstances we keep looking at people we keep looking at our feelings our emotion we keep looking at our events we keep looking at our checking accounts we keep looking at our mortgage payment we keep looking at all of the things that distract us from the real things and so we we live so distracted that every day we, we, we declare we need a miracle. We need God to show up and show out and move. We need a fresh movement of God. The truth of the matter is, we need a fresh movement of our hearts from hardness to softness. You are at work already. You are moving constantly. We're so dead, we can't see it because we're so focused on ourselves. God, I, I don't pray that you would wake up. I pray that we would wake up For hundreds of years, the Jews have been asleep through Assyria, through Babylon, through the Medes, through the Persians, generation after generation, sleeping, going through the motions. And it takes crises. It takes conflict. It takes a shifting in the heart. It takes fear. It takes things that we must go through that we would never choose for ourselves to wake us up. And Lord, right now we're in a place in our nation where we keep hearing, Wake up, wake up, and that's all well and good, but I pray we wake up to the right things your kingdom, not ours. I pray that you'd help us to reprioritize what's important. And I pray instead of trying to come awake as a country, I pray that we would come awake as a kingdom. And the God that is already at work, a God that is already moving, a God that is already the God of the mundane and the miraculous would be evidenced through your people who are people of prayer. I don't pray that the world would be reversed and they can go back the way they were. I pray that there would be a reversal and may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, help us to be kingdom people. Help us to be kingdom minded. Help us to be glory central and not get so hung up on who we are here. But whose we are there. And then we'll begin to see a revival pour out because I know it's your will. I know it's your desire to warm our hearts. may it be so here let it start here let it go from here and Lord for those that are here today that are not trusting you hearts are hardened we're distracted by all the wrong things I pray that today would be a day where there would be an awakening in our spirits your spirit is speaking now even right now your spirit is calling us to yourself in a in a strong way. And we're going to listen for a moment and we're going to forget it in a moment. But I pray that this would not be emotional. I pray that you would draw people to yourself. And if there has been a time, not been a time in somebody's life that's even in this room now that has given their life to you and said, I'm going to be faithful to you, Lord, regardless of my circumstances. I surrender my sin to you, Lord. I want your Your death to be my death and your life to be my life. Lord, I pray right now your spirit would draw people to yourself. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Will you stand with me, please? Listen, I know that the Lord is speaking to hearts this morning. And I don't want us to delay it because I'm telling you, I do believe that there's a time coming soon and and prophecy and scripture tells us that a time comes when God no longer deals with the the hearts of a man. And I'm telling you today, if the Lord is dealing with you, if the Lord is calling you, if he is softening you, today is the day to make that decision. Not just to believe something, to act on something. To say, I want the life of Jesus to be my life. Otherwise, It'll end in failure. So today, if you'll come forward, I'd love, I'll come down, we'll pray together. I would love to share with you the hope and the joy of Jesus Christ. Not the joy of Haman, the joy of Jesus. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.